Welcome to the UC Architects Podcast. This is episode 29, recorded Saturday, October 26th, 2013. I'm your host, Pat Richard, and today I'm joined with John Cook, Sirkan Veraglu, Tom Arbuthnot, Dave Stork, and our special guest, Ian Smith. So, Ian, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to these days. Hello, Pat. First of all, I'd like to thank you for inviting me onto this show. Um, really looking forward to spending the next hour talking around UC with uh, all of you. So, just to start off a little bit about myself, um, like I say, my name's Ian Smith. I'm one of the um, Unified Communication Senior Consultants at Modality Systems in the UK. I work alongside two of the other co-hosts, which you regularly have on the show, um, Tom Abthnot and Justin Morris. Whereas Tom and uh, Justin are primarily based in the south in London, I'm actually um, based out of uh, a city called Leeds, which for you US guys is, I guess, directly 200 miles directly north from London. So uh, just to paint the fuller picture, if, if I went another 200 miles di- directly north from, from Leeds, um, I'd be, I'd be uh, in Scotland. So kind of almost central to, to England, really. Um, in my personal UC life, um, I'm the owner and uh, contributor to a um, UC blog uh, posting uh, called um, uh, northernlink.co.uk. Also, I'm regular uh, adding comments and information onto Twitter at uh, northernlink as well. So uh, it'd be great if we could put a, a, a feed up onto, onto the UC Architects and uh, give awareness. Also, I'm in the process at the moment of setting up a, a northern um, user group around uh, around Link and UC. So uh, hopefully look out for that uh, starting uh, come January 2014. And, and I guess uh, that's just about it for myself. So, uh, yeah, thank you again for having me on the show and look forward to the next hour. All right, thanks. And uh, heading into our top stories for this episode, uh, the big one that's kind of happened that everybody kind of saw coming um, – Microsoft bought the uh, devices and services division from Nokia. So uh, big. I don't think anybody was surprised, but uh, they'll come out with their own branded uh, uh, devices pretty soon. Uh, what's everybody think about those? Or that, I should say. No, I know you guys love your, your Lumias. <laughs> yeah, it's no surprise that I was not a fan of the Nokia devices after getting the 900 because of their earphone conspiracy thing. But uh, that's resolved in the 1020, which I've uh, just upgraded to, and it's uh, it's been pretty nice. You think this will be an issue with uh, some of the other providers? I think HTC sold a decent amount of the 8Xs, but, I mean, yeah. I mean, Samsung's only kind of half in the, you know, they're barely even making any devices now for Windows Phone. So it seems like just Nokia and you see at this point yeah i mean i had a my first windows phone um 7.0 device was a a samsung which i really liked and i was more than happy to go back with them with the whole nokia earphone thing but um yeah i think this is going to give them a solid footing in the devices category but um it'll be interesting to see if you know HTC starts dropping off or, or increasing or, or what? I've heard some rumors that uh, Microsoft is now um, giving of, of trying to make a deal with HTC and giving Windows Phone for free. Yeah, I think I heard it. Uh, so that could be a strategy that, that they are going to deliver Windows Phone for free, something like that, to, in order to uh, get other uh, device vendors to make uh, Windows Phone uh, uh, 
Uh, and another story is that uh, I think that um, I'm not sure whether that's with HTC. Yeah, that's also with HTC that I wanted to make. Uh, well, the the virtual buttons uh, thing, the the hardware buttons are are rumored not to be uh, any requirement requirements anymore, so that uh, companies like HTC can easily make their um, Android uh, phones uh, compliant with Windows Phone uh, operating system uh, requirements. So I, I think we already see some shifts in in how Microsoft is uh, selling the, the the operating system to vendors. Did you just say Android? I think a puppy died. <laughs> I said boo. Had an inaudible boo. And it's uh, and it's just not like Nokia is not just going to be for uh, Windows Phone. It will also be running Windows Art like 8.1 as well. Uh, they, I think this week they announced Lumia 2520s. Have you guys seen those tablets? I, I've seen yeah, the the advertising. Yeah, 2520. Yeah, 2520s. Yeah, I mean it looks like a nice piece of hardware. I just don't, you know, right now obviously a lot of these devices were in flight, and so they kind of make no sense. And you know, when when RT's not selling, why is Nokia now? who's part of Microsoft making their own RT tablet. You know, it's sort of like, well, you know, you can't even sell one. Why are you trying to come out with another? But obviously these things were, you know, in production for a while. And so, you know, we'll see. I mean, that's the whole thing with even with, with, with Nokia. I mean, on one hand, it's, it's not, unfortunately for Microsoft, it's, I think they're in the same kind of dilemma that Google is, right? So they bought Motorola. So either they put all, you know, put all their focus in into Motorola branded Nexus devices, but, but, but of course alienating everybody else, all, all the other partners, you know, or they make it more seamless, where it's like, okay, well, basically, we're only going to go this direction. The only phones we're going to put out are our are, um, are, are Nexus devices. You know, so same thing with Microsoft. Like, why? You know, there's going to be a Surface phone. We have to assume, right? And it makes too much sense at this point. So, what happens if I'm HTC at that point? <laughs> it's like, well, why? You know, you're making your own devices. It's branded with everything else in your device category. Why am I even trying to bother trying to you know make a niche market with your platform anymore? I don't know. It's going to be an interesting, you know, transition now. I think. Yeah, I know that uh, that Delta made their big announcement that they were going to equip all their flight attendants with Windows phones, and um, that's already taken place. I was on a a, a couple of flights in the last week. And um, sure enough, they're using Windows phones to make their uh, process their credit card transactions when you buy uh, alcohol and snacks. I couldn't get uh, a good enough look at what device they were looking because they had some weird case around it with a yeah. credit card reader yeah. on it. But um, they're already doing it. Every flight I've been on since they made that announcement, they've been using Windows phones. So, uh, and I I hear that they're now going to equip all their flight their uh, pilots with uh, surfaces too. So. Um, yeah, I'm not going to fly Delta from that. No. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's interesting to to see uh, uh, what's happening with that. But um, you know, hopefully these uh, these competitors will will continue to uh, provide Windows Phone devices so that there's some you know fair competition. But uh, yeah, you got to wonder. Um, Next up, um, MVPs. So we've uh, we've talked about the MVP program here before. Uh, there's a quarterly award uh, process that goes through, and we are happy to announce that our own Michelle DeRoy has been awarded the MVP award. So, yay. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> he was working for that for quite, quite a while, right? Yeah, it seems for some reason that uh, it just took him forever to uh, finally get awarded. I know he was nominated like every time. 
Um, so uh, glad to uh, welcome him to the group, and that makes uh, 12 out of the 15 of us as being uh, MVPs. So <laughs> congrats to Michelle. And um, on the heels of that, uh, another uh, uh, big deal. Uh, our own Tom Arbuthnot has passed the MCSM uh, exam, so uh, congrats. That means I think four of us are four in the group now. So, Tom, you're a madman. I hear you did it without going to a rotation. Yeah, yeah, due to the, the program coming to an end, there wasn't a rotation open that I could fly over to, but fortunately I was kind of stacking up for it before they started to win the program, so uh, I just sacrificed quite a few evenings and weekends and... Fortunately, doing various global deployments of EV already, it all kind of came together. So, yeah, really pleased. Yeah, congrats, man, really. That's, uh, that's no small feat. <laughs> Cheers, yeah. guys. I, I've only heard of, uh, I think, one person doing that on the exchange side. Um, I'm sure there's there may be a couple more. but Yeah, I think Neil Hobson, right, uh, was the one. But I'm not sure. Did we know he did pass? Uh, as far as I know, he did. Okay. Um, I don't remember if I knew or not. But you know, it's it's you know, and John, you you can attest to this. It's hard enough when you actually go through the training and then pass the exams. Uh, There's but no scenario in which, which I can imagine ever ever, ever, ever even trying, trying to do it without, 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 without without being in class. class. I, mean, I, I, can't I can't pass, pass even even in class. class. Yes, yes, so. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we're just going to have to insist that uh, you know Tom give us uh, you know some uh, some training on the side there so that we can all be just as uh, as smart. So, but. Uh, but congrats, Tom. Glad to uh, glad to see you made it. Yeah, cheers. And uh, heading into our topics for this episode, uh, first up, uh, the call pickup group manager for Link 2013. So uh, we talked a couple episodes ago about uh, our own uh, Johan uh, coming out with a, a GUI wrapper, essentially, for CIFA uh, Util, and it's, uh, it's proven to be pretty popular, and I know I use CIFA Util far more often now. Uh, with that little GUI. Well, um, James Cousin has come out with essentially a, a wrapper for uh, the uh, configuring call pickup groups. And you essentially can uh, define your orbits, your groups, and the users in it, and, um, and basically take all of the hard work out of trying to figure all this stuff out. So if you're dealing with um, call pickup, in uh, link 2013 then by all means you should check out this utility and we'll certainly get a um, a link to it on our uh, summary page for this particular uh, episode uh, next up uh, John you've uh, you've uh, looked into this uh, certificate authentication and passive auth support for uh, for link mobile applications what did you find out yeah, um, at the beginning of the month, um, uh, they posted on Nextop. Um, um, basically, it, was, it comes in as an update in the 5.2 version of the client for mobile for Link 2013. Um, and what it really enables is uh, a lot of the same functionality. Well, it enables two different uh, pieces of functionality, but one is similar to how the desktop client works, where you know you log in with credentials once, and then you get a, a local cert that you know from that point on you're really logging in with the cert, and not the actual stored credentials. And a lot of organizations. Um, having, uh, you know, one of the barriers to, mo- to allowing link mobility was the fact that, you know, they had a policy that they didn't allow any credentials to be sitting on the, the device. And up until this point, um, the only way to, you know, log in a link was to actually have your credentials, you know, set on the on the login page on the on mobile. So now um, the functionality 
behaves the same as a desktop client where you get an actual you know local cert and from that point on it's really using those and not the cache credentials um it also enabled passive logon so for adfs type scenarios so now you log in with the with the, with the mobile client and you get an adfs login page and then you get a, your, your token and then uh, you log in so um uh, i haven't i've yet to see anyone even requ- require that yet but so this, that was actually kind of surprised but i'm guessing for online and some other scenarios that's probably going to be useful if you guys have you know any more expansion on that but that's basically you know the functionality and i, th- I think it's triggered is there anything on the back back end or is it all just in the mobile client itself i'm not sure um if there was anything you know um version wise you know server wise um that enabled that um or was it just on the client but We'll put the link up and you kind of go in there. There's also a, a link to the main next top page uh, from Jen's Chur, Brismison, kind of really, really deep diving into it too. So, on how the. Aren't there a, a little bit of downsides with using the certification uh, uh, authentication with the Link Mobile Client? Uh, because, uh, as I understood it, you lose the um, Exchange connectivity because EWS from Exchange doesn't use the certificate authentication. So, it can. Uh, authenticate, so you lose uh, that that coupling of uh, a change. So, for instance, the the next meeting, uh, the meeting overview, and stuff like that. Yeah, I didn't see that. I mean, obviously, you could then probably put your credentials in. Uh, there's a spot to put your credentials in, but then of course you're you're breaking. You know, <laughs> then you're putting credentials in into the exchange component, which is probably defeating the purpose of having certain auth, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. So, so basically, Exchange uh, EWS should should also have certificate authentication, and then right. the same the same ones like uh, from from the Link Mobile client, and uh, uh, well, the same certificate in for both authentications uh, points the Link server and the Exchange server. So that would be interesting. Oh, and that would be nice to demo, <laughs> <laughs> or to troubleshoot. Oh yeah. <laughs> Well, and one of the issues too. I mean, it's nice in, in another way too because one of the problems with what these clients has always been is that they assume UPN is the same as CPURI. So, you know, in environments where that's not the case, people always like you know get a failed log on the first time, have to put in their user account, um, you know, their actual log on account. Um, so it's kind of confusing for users in that scenario. So this should at least obviate that after the initial log on, because lots of people complain about that fact. <laughs> in a perfect world, everyone CPURI and SMTP and UPN are all the same, but. And unfortunately, that's rarely the case. You you mean it's not? <laughs> <laughs> I, I I haven't had a I, I, the client I'm working for now. I actually have an E, and which I haven't had one of those in a while. So I have some weird no, numeric, you know, alphanumeric, you know, logout ID relevance to my name whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Um, and there was an update uh, that enables operator assistance uh, during PSTN dial-in. Uh, conferencing and uh, John, you had looked at that as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a feature a lot of people uh, have been asking for. I mean, it's definitely a um, um, you know a hardcore telephony type you know uh, ACP call bridge type scenario where if you know if you're trying to dial your like most call bridges, they only give you three seconds to try to type in an 18 digit number, and you know you're juggling back on your phone between your your calendar app and and the dialer app, and you're like, why why am I still doing this in 21st century? Um, so you know, and if you you know if you uh, encounter that, which I always do because I can't remember a phone number to save my life, um, then you know, but you, after two tries, you know, you get some operator like, well, lady, you can't help me <laughs> anyway, so you hang up and try again. So this way, you know, gives the same kind of functionality link where now, um, you know, a user can actually have a dial, you know, a, a number to drop to, and you can assign kind of an operator to the conference, you know, generally, and uh, you know, for assistance or whatever. So it's a kind of a cool. Um, 
you know, add. You guys have anything else to add on that? I actually really haven't uh, had a lot of, you know, people calling for it, but I know in some organizations people have asked if we could do it or not. And up until now, the answer was no. Yeah, I haven't had anybody request it yet, but uh, it's interesting that um, that the feature has been added. So, you know, when you when you look at a big, you know, PSTN feature set versus Link, you know, the, the people that are uh, responsible for, you know, PBXs and things like that always like to point at little tiny minute features right. that don't exist in Link and go, aha, we can't migrate because it doesn't have this feature. And um, so you can't complain about this anymore. Yeah, it's uh, it was enabled in the uh, October 2013 um, Cumulab update for Link. So yeah, we'll we'll talk about that in a minute too. So um, excellent. And uh, I wanted to take a second to uh, talk about a community-led effort. Um, you know, some people when you go into uh, a new customer, if you're a consultant and uh, you're beginning a new Link-related project. You know, you have to do a bunch of information gathering and, you know, people are always wondering, have I gathered all the information? Do I have everything I need? Um, You know, what did I forget? Well, there's um, a pretty cool little effort going on on uh, on TechNet, um, the Microsoft Link Deployment Checklist. So you go there, look at the checklist that uh, that we've come up with so far, um, add in your comments, add some fields. Um, and it's a nice little starter checklist for going into a new project and uh, and doing your uh, envisioning and information gathering. So uh, check it out. We'll put a, a link up on the summary page. Next up, the System Center Advisor now has a, a link in it. So Tom, you had taken a look at that, and uh, and is it worth it? Yeah, I haven't looked at the 2013, but I looked at the 2010, and it's it's much the same. Now they have 2013 support. Um, so for those that haven't seen it, it's, it's System Center online, um, and I think it's still the case that if you're, you're um, under software assurance, you get it free. So you basically sign in with a, a Microsoft ID, put some clients' uh, plugins on your link servers, and it does SCOM-like monitoring into the cloud. Um, so if, if you're not monitoring Link and you don't have SCOM internally, there's really no reason not to do it. It's a, a nice nice add-on for monitoring Link. And uh, good to see 2013 support now there. And I'm, I'm assuming it, it can it give you alerts like, uh, like SCOM can, or is it just something you have to log into to look at? Yeah, I, I think it does email alerts. It certainly has a console similar to SCOM, so it does synths and it watches the Perfmon counters and the event logs and it's kind of uh, scom light a little bit, but in, in terms of link, it does all the stuff you want it to do, really. Okay, okay, cool. good. And something else that uh, Microsoft has come out with is uh, some new reports for Link Online. So if you need to look at some more granular data, such as uh, active users, uh, total audio and video minutes, uh, conferencing minutes, um, you know, peer-to-peer session reports, conferencing reports, um, you now have the ability to see that within uh, Link Online. So some real nice, you know, HTML-driven reports that uh, are available now. So we'll get a link up to those uh, on the summary page. And now uh, kind of a a big one, uh, for me at least, Um, AOL has announced a direct federation with Link and has um, UC federation plans for uh, AOL Instant Messenger after support from Microsoft drops in July of next year. So I I sat on the uh, conference call about this and uh, unfortunately was quite disappointed. Um, 
they are going to charge for it. You pay per user per month, and it depends on uh, your user count as to what rate you pay. Um, if you're an organization, I believe it was under a thousand seats. It's as high as four or five dollars per user per month. That's and insane. That's that's what I said. Um, you know, in we have our company has uh, a good. Isn't that actually more than Link Online itself? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have <laughs> we have a pretty good footprint in the financial sector. In you know, especially you know, up in New York and New Jersey area, and and a lot of the financial sector people still use AIM um, and Yahoo uh, Instant Messenger for uh, federated uh, partner communications. It, I, I don't know why it just happens to be. And um, so we had to look into this to figure out a strategy for uh, our companies, or our customers, I should say, um, you know, after the planned shutdown of uh, uh, PIC Federation through Link in July of next year. Um, and so, you know, 4 or $5 per user per month is, is ridiculous in my opinion. Um, we don't have too many people internally that communicate with AOL and some messenger users. Um, it does go down, you know, as, as the size of the organization, uh, does get bigger, but I, I, I don't know. I, I don't see, I don't see how they're going to get this price for. Yeah. I just stand the rationale. I mean, like you said, I mean, there's very few people that want to even federate with LR care. So you'd think you'd make it free just to drive some interest in your system and just make it convenient for people. Well, why would you? You know, it seems to me like they're just guaranteeing like no one's ever going to, you know, try to federate with it now and people are going to move over to Skype because it's free. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm all for uh, configuring federation with with anybody that, you know, Link can can uh, can connect to. I mean, I, I think it it just makes sense to open it up as far as you can, you know, security concerns, you know, addressed, uh, obviously, but um, five dollars a user per month. Yeah, I don't understand how they're going to get that or why they expect anyone to pay for it. especially because now was it who was aol free before a pick or was it yahoo that was pay, one of them you had to pay for with no aol you right? aol you have to pay for through pick okay still yeah it was yahoo that was free yeah right mm-hmm. so yeah I, I but it was like a t was like it was pennies right before with pick yeah it, it was it was nothing like what they're what they're trying to, right. so, to gouge you for now I, mean, I think people would you know happy to pay a small amount but i don't see any scenario where they're going to pay that kind of money Right now, one thing that they that they did also announce um, was this federation service, um, where they are kind of going to be like a federation gateway for other organizations. And so, if you have um, some other organizations that you want to communicate with that are on a dissimilar system, they'll be able to connect to. AOL's federation system called Omni, and then you can federate with Omni, and via that kind of gateway, you can communicate with them. So now, they're doing like a cloud cloud clearinghouse type. Yeah, and and there'll be like a directory access where you can look up different companies that you know that are on that solution, and then send a federation request, and when they approve it, then the federation is automatically configured for you. Uh, through that gateway to communicate with that particular organization. So see, that, that makes sense. I mean, I would pay for that. You know, that's, that's, that seems like a, a you know reasonable product to pay for. You know. Well, 
Well, first of all, they, they couldn't give me any much information about it. So they said basically that when you sign up for uh, the Federation benefits where you're paying per user for your organization, that you get uh, complimentary access to this Omni solution for the calendar year 2014. So if you sign up right now, you get it through next year. They have not said whether after that they're going to charge just for that Omni access in addition to, um, you know, the Federation for your particular users. So nobody seemed to have any information about that. Um, so we'll we'll see. I mean, I, you know, I, I I basically sat there and poked holes through them, you know, because their example was well, you know, we could get, um, you know, if you're on Link and there's another company on Link, then you can federate through our Omni service, and. And I basically asked them, why would I want to do that? <laughs> well, I can just federate directly with my link to their link. Yeah, I can, I can already for do free. that. Yeah, directly for free. And they were kind of... Well, glad they take your money for you to allow you to do something you can do yourself for nothing. Right, right. They were basically stymied. I think I caught them off guard with that. And, you know, they, they came up with a bunch of other scenarios where, well, you know... Um, Different organizations, I said, I can already, you know, Open Federation allows me to federate with anybody else that wants to federate with me. So um, I kind of poked a few holes in that, but I didn't see where that particular service would be uh, worth paying the per month, you know, premium for the users. And it actually... It actually Are they goes, doing anything like Pat? Were they doing anything like per user clearinghouse or anything? So you could say these users could talk to this company, but these users couldn't. No, and, and I tried to ask them that, and I couldn't get a clear answer. Um, and it could be just you know the people on the call weren't you know didn't have any insight into that, but um, it 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 didn't look promising. You know there was no compelling reason for uh, for me that I saw. So we'll, we'll have to see. But you know. Four to five dollars per month, and that's basically with no support. If you want Priority Plus, you know, pick up the phone, talk to somebody in AOL support immediately for some Federation issue, it can go as high as twenty dollars a user per month. <laughs> that guy's so, not going to be you <laughs> much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it it. I, I was very disappointed. It was it was uh, an hour of time that I wish I could get back. You owe me an hour, AOL. Yeah. <laughs> Pat, Pat, yeah. Pat in, in, in the UK, all the clients I've ever worked with, I've, I've personally never had a client who's even signed up to any sort of AOL integration. What, what's it like in the US? Is it a, a big demand? Or? Now, and for us, it's the only demand that we've seen yeah. is the financial sector because it, it tends to get used a lot by them. Um, that's, you know, we have it internally, but, um, I can tell you that I only have one contact, um, in my list for, for aim and it's my mom. So (laughs) (laughs) that's it. I don't see really anybody using, um, using it. It's, it's never been a big thing. It's, you know, if it's something, you know, the customers basically tell us if we can just turn it on, fine, go ahead and turn it on. But if we have yeah. to pay for it, we have no interest in it. Yeah. Right. I, it, and again, I, it also came one of the reasons uh, it was also one of the, the catalysts for a lot of the third party, um, you know, ethic, ethical wall type products mm-hmm. and scanning products, because these companies did want to do federation with these public networks, but also wanted to have it controlled by policy mm-hmm. who can do it, who can't, um, and to be able to you know, archive and monitor those as well. So, like, you know, like was Iconics, which Quest bought, and stuff like uh, Actius Vanguard. Um, 
the public network connectivity, you know, monitoring was always one of the reasons why those people bought that bought those products. Right. Yeah. Right. They do. They do do some compliance stuff for you. So. Right. Um, but no, we'll, we'll, if we'll Apple, no, see, if Apple would release a FaceTime gateway and charge five bucks a head, I bet people would be interested. Absolutely. Well, at least one person would be. <laughs> two, two people. I know. It, it, it's one of the saddest things, though. I mean, you know, as much of an Apple fanboy as I am, it's like they, they go ninety-five percent of the way to make standards, and then they just stop. You know, they don't ever say, "Yeah, sure, we'll uh, we'll open it up for everybody," and then you know, so you have like millions of people using the network that we're not going to be able to touch, seemingly now forever. You know, I don't know. Right. Right. Yeah. I I I see this crashing and burning quickly. Uh, we'll see. Uh, next up. Link Room System Administration Web Portal. Um, this has been released uh, by Microsoft. It's a little executable you can run. Uh, Tom, you've looked into this, right? Yeah, so um, we've got a couple of customers now with Link Room Systems, actually, and um, I've been talking to Adam Jacobs at Podicom a lot about the uh, the various bits and pieces. Obviously, he's got a good idea of how that all comes together. Um, so basically, Link Room System is a link endpoint. It just works with Link 2013, um, but what this link uh, room admin portal exe does is gives you a another web page, um, kind of a bit like response groups. Um, it kind of kicks off the back of um, CSCP, but it's entirely separate, and it lets you do things like uh, set the set the user, set the credentials, set the volume level, all the kind of basic admin that you'd get centrally for a traditional um, room-based system compressing solution. Um, it's not particularly difficult to deploy, but there are a few kind of config files you need to edit. It's not uh, not just click and and run, but it's not far off. Okay, and and is it? That one. <laughs> yeah, it, it it was a minor thing that uh, that that came out. So, um, do you have to do this minor configuration for each link room system you deploy, or? No, it's, uh, once you um, once you deploy it on your front-end pool it's available on the pool um, every time you deploy a link room system you run a few powershell commands to create a co uh, contact object um, and that somehow ties back into this so that you can administer those rooms through this web page and yeah. if you've got if you've got lrs you're going to know about it or if whoever's selling you lrs should be talking to you about it if you haven't then you just don't need to worry really and so uh, the next question does it require a new um, a new SAN on your certificate? Uh, no, I don't think so because it runs off of the. Um, it's like uh, linkpool.domain.com/lrs. Okay. Um, so it's still using the same uh, server name, just a, another directory of IS. Okay. Yeah, it's similar to the web scheduler, I think, too, right? It's yeah, but the yeah web, exactly. The, yeah. The, but the web scheduler, you can assign a simple URL to. So you can have, oh, like, scheduler.contoso.com, right, right, right. um, which is what we typically do just to make it easy for people to remember. Yeah, and no, I don't think uh, – I certainly haven't seen the ability to do that for LRS, um, but obviously you probably only think a couple of people are administrating them in the in the org anyway. Now, is this uh, something that you have to install on each front end, or you just install it once and it kind of applies to everything, or – a uh, good question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he says, uh, 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 "It's a it's a web service, so I, I think you would have to run it on every front end if you wanted it to be served on every front end." Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Interesting. It, it's it's much like uh, when they deployed mobility and they gave you an extra thing to install. It's the same thing. I imagine in the next release it'll be baked in, and in this release it's an add-on. Okay. Good information. Um, I'm getting ready to 
do a new 2013 deployment, so I'll have to look into that. Next up, uh, yeah, go ahead, John. Well, I know, I mean, and you guys experience so far how much uh, how much uh, traction our room systems getting um, from what do you guys have seen? Um, about my the current, link? yeah, like LRS deployments. Yeah, like how many room systems? I mean, are they becoming like? Are you seeing them like being deployed a lot? Or, I have personally yet to see anyone doing them yet, but I know if there's, there's interest, but. Yeah, I, I think th- I think there is interest uh, in it, uh, uh, especially our our company is, is looking into it, uh, but it's also because of the the, the dog footing principle. But I think it's uh, an attractive solution. Mm. Yeah, my current project uh, they want to deploy um, a bunch of them, and we are deploying one of them internally as well. So. Cool. Yeah, we've we've got two customers who have decided to go off and do them between the US and the UK. So clearly, there's something there that people are interested in. And um, then they're not the cheapest thing to do. It's quite a big cost compared to a traditional room-based system. But then it's a quite a small cost compared to a, a telepresence room-based right, system. Exactly. So and I think that's depends how you look at it. And, and right, that, that's more that, that direction. And, and that is generating the interest because it's it's a lot cheaper than traditional uh, forms. At least that's, the that's what I are so ridiculous. I mean, I, I went in the I went in the Cisco office when I was doing the Jabber pilot, and I, you know, and I'm like, okay, this is cool, but you, I mean, if you're a publicly traded company, your money way on that, you need to be fired. You know, it's like, and they even have like the chair. Ooh, the chairs are the same, so they're all at the same height. And like, really, like, <laughs> like the, that's the what makes the meeting, you know, shorter. Like, that's gonna wreck the meeting for you, you know. <laughs> the thing that kills me about telepresence is. If you certainly the Cisco stuff, if you if you buy it, you have to provision full time dedicated bandwidth to it, um, because that's part of guaranteeing the experience. If you don't do that, you basically can't deploy it. I'm like, well, if you dedicate the same bandwidth to Link, it's going to perform the same. Nobody does because they can't be bothered. But you know, it's it. You can get it's not the same experience, but you can get I think ninety percent of the way there for an eighth of the cost. And, you know, I mean, I get it for the for the audience they're going after. I mean, you know, you know, you know, the the, the top tier. I mean, I get you know the expense and the the functionality, but. It's just sort of like, come on, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like like I can deploy a video to your company globally with webcams and desktop, or you can have two of these for the two big cheeses <laughs> right. to talk across. So the with the telepresence room, I could fly you back and forth from London first class at least five times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good good toys if you've got the cash and the Yeah, right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Next up, uh, Department of Defense people can now use Link. Woohoo! Um, Link achieved the JITC certification for the federal government, which means they can use uh, Link for voice, video, and IM and presence in some of the defense networks. So uh, who's going to be the first to have uh, a a DOD federated contact? That would be cool. (laughs) I mean, actually, this is kind of a big deal if you think about it. Um, You know, that and FIPS compliancy before. Um, um, when you know that, that rolled out the dedicated service back in the day, and that was kind of a big deal. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those asks, and, and it certainly it, it alienates certain segments of the population that could be on Link because they can't, you know, support these kind of things, um, and it probably hinders other organizations from federating with with organization those organizations until they can comply with them too. So, um, I've actually had that experience for some of my customers where they're, you know, they want to federate with other link environments, but, you know, since they're not on, they can't be trusted in, in some ways that they won't, you know, that they disallow federation. So hopefully stuff like this will increase the uh, option. Well, yeah, and that's just another way for the NSA to uh, connect to you, right? <laughs> yeah, or maybe if uh, we had uh, federation uh, between the between the government and the, and the contractors who made their health care, 
it wouldn't be such a good catastrophe. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Maybe they could just share their desktop. Hey, look, this is what we're, this is what we're looking at. No, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, good. Well, glad to see uh, Link getting some, you know, positive movement movement within the uh, uh, the defense aspect. I know that we've looked at doing some uh, some hosting, dedicated hosting for federal government, and uh, it, it's nice to see that they're comfortable with allowing that kind of communication uh, on some of their networks. And uh, a, a big update uh, in September last month uh, for Link 2013, uh, the September 2013 cumulative update. Uh, Tom, tell us about it. Yeah, so um, this is the uh, the client side update, although the server updates out now as well. Um, client side, we've got uh, spell check in in Link 2013 finally, which is quite a Yay! nice touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've we've heard lots of people moan about that, particularly anybody that comes from uh, same time always says, "Why is there no spell check when it's Office?" Uh, See, I think it's sometimes more annoying because like, on the Mac, you know, we have it like on the Mac side because it comes in through level stuff but i can't tell you how many times i've typed in something you know link related and it changes to something i'm like what no don't change you know stop that it's, that's not what i meant to say you know yeah i don't think it does auto correct on link actually i think it just it's just under like i still yeah. haven't gotten it to work yet <laughs> yeah I, I always have to turn off auto correct on my pcs because i find it corrects things so often that i'm convinced i don't know how to spell them and clearly i don't so um, but yeah you don't get that on link you just get squigglies um, and it does seem to respect your um, custom dictionary as well, which is nice. Um, so it's just using the um, the Office spell check engine under the covers, I believe. Um, also, we've got uh, the tray icon back, which uh, was something that was really annoying me. Not rationally at all, but really annoying me that we missed. Um, so for those that don't know, in the previous update, they've removed the tray presence icon for a standard link icon, a bit like Outlook, so just an L. Um, rather than having your presence set. Now, obviously, in, in Windows 7 or 8, you can see your presence on the taskbar anyway, but, you know, years of darting your eyes to the bottom right-hand corner to see where you are and that you're signed in uh, just wouldn't revert for me, so I'm glad to see that back. That, oh, yeah, that, that was... I was going to say that that's always my network connectivity uh, indicator. You know, if I'm working at home and I suspect I just dropped my internet connection, that was always the first place I'd look is at the presence indicator because link would drop real quick. Um, and you don't realize how much you look at it until, you know, an update comes out and takes it away. Yeah, and I was going to say, I mean, that was, it, it, you, I don't know how this happened. I don't know what we thought. They could, they, they could just do that and, and a million people would scream. I can't tell you how many, how many people customers went ballistic you just you know you just can't change an icon in the corporate desktop that people have been trained to look at for a you know a decade how right. long is that that, that system track icon been on so you but I'm like, i just laughed when they when i did it i'm like you just can't go changing that you're not telling anyone right but you could always hover over it and it would tell you your presence yeah i'm just saying like you know they just change like what is this link icon i mean right that's how, that's a million help desk calls that happen because of that right you know it's just yeah. how it is yeah, and it's, it's good. I mean, yeah, it's, I, I kind of agree with John. It's good to see Microsoft reacting relatively quickly to, to changing that back due to customer demand. So, uh, yeah, make your voices heard whenever you don't like something, I think, is the, the underlying message there. Yeah. Tom, in that, in that same um, September client update, is that the one which fixed the reverse proxy prompting as well? Or? Uh, yeah, that's right, actually. Yeah, so that was a big ongoing issue. Um, good shout there, Ian. So uh, the previous to 
this update, if you had a web proxy, when Link would try and hit web services, it would respect the proxy pack file and it would prompt you for credentials if you had an authenticating proxy. Um, as of this update, now you seem to be able to hit web services and not get that authentication. Um, whether it's using pass-through auth or whether it's just ignoring the pack file again, I haven't really worked out yet, but it's definitely fixed the issue. There's a blog post on that on my blog, so I'll cross-post the, uh, the link to the podcast, but it's network password prompt is the, uh, the issue that you would have seen. We also got the, um, the ability to drag and drop images, I think, in that same... Yeah, same update, did. right? So you could you can now copy and paste uh, images yeah, right right into the IM window, which yeah. Oh, I missed that. I miss really missed that feature. I'm really happy that I introduced it in this one. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. Although I have seen some some weirdness with that every once in a while. That yeah, it's not perfect. I heard people complaining about you know it's like it's kind of sometimes smushes them or um, yeah, you can't read them, you can't uh, can't zoom a, in or something. That's a number one. Yeah, yeah, and that's a number one. Just like you know, complete total com complaint from people who come from what's this same time? Because the same time you can do it, and it went to Link, and you can't do it. And I can't tell you how many people were just incensed that that Link couldn't do it. I mean, it does. I mean, and, and again, it was always like, well, you can do it from the whiteboard, so you know, it's not that big of a deal, guys. <laughs> but people, you know. Right. Yeah. So, so I guess like uh, I guess that's all the good news. The uh, the bad news is it None breaks. <laughs> uh, well, all that all that stuff. Yeah, works kind of pretty well. But um, it breaks uh, free busy presence from Exchange Calendar. Um, so if you rely on that, and a, a lot of people do, obviously, then it's yeah. probably not worth rolling out yet. Explain that in in a little bit more detail about how it's broken, where you would see that. Yeah, so uh, so one of the key features of Link being that it's part of the Office products and seamlessly works with all of them is uh, that if you're in a meeting or you set uh, yourself to a meeting in an Outlook calendar appointment, then Link sees that and changes your presence automatically to busy in a meeting. Um, and that's great because it means that you don't have to think about changing your presence or driving it. Your presence is driven by the virtue of you being in a meeting in your calendar. Um, same a bit like if you're in 2013 if you present if you go into presenting in link it automatically changes your presence to busy in a presentation if you walk away from your keyboard it goes to away so the idea is, is you don't drive your presence that link drives your presence for you um, unfortunately in this CU uh, it just seems to ignore the exchange calendar so you could be in a meeting in a calendar, but your presence will stick to available if you're at your PC and uh, typing away. No. Wasn't it um, an, an issue with uh, EWS? Um, so that, that also the Unified Contact Store and the, the uh, conversation history isn't saved anymore? Wasn't that also, or was that, uh, am I confusing something with something else? I'm probably confusing it with something else. Yeah, I'm not sure. What, sorry, was that uh, Exchange Contacts? Unified yeah, Contact the Store, Unified Contact Store, yeah. Yeah, I don't have anybody uh, doing that yet, to be honest. Any of you guys have anybody doing that? Yeah, UCS? Yeah. Well, I'm doing it in my, in my home environment. I mean, not many organizations have gone to 13 and <laughs> that I hit yet for Exchange, but um, yeah, I did one small deployment and set it up. Yeah, we do it uh, internally right now. We're mid-deployment of UCS, and so all of our enterprise voice-enabled users um, are configured for UCS. And other than the occasional um, alert that I see in uh, the monitoring server, it, it, it seems to be working okay. 
So um, just to wrap on that client side, see you. Um, the spell check, if you're running Office 2010 rather than Office 2013 or, or Office 2007 for that matter, um, doesn't work out of the box. Um, and there was a really good post uh, on the uh, Mastering Link blog, uh, Richard uh, Brysonton, uh, who worked out that if you deploy the spell check tools, which are a separate download or proofing tools, they're called a separate download for Office 2013, even if you're running Office 2007 or Office 2010, that kicks in the Link 2013 spell check. Um, so really nice bit of uh, detective work from him. I'm reminded of the line from the hackers movie, hack the planet, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like, it was up like a few days after the, uh, after the CU came out as well. So he clearly moved fast on it. So uh, kudos. And, and you had mentioned, um, you know, there's a server side, uh, cumulative update as well. So in October, uh, the, um, October, 2013 cumulative update for link server, 2013 came out, um, and I haven't really seen uh, too many features, really. Uh, but the big one is uh, Link 2013 is now supported on Windows Server 2012 R2, and that uh, that's been something that some people have been asking for. Although I don't really see any advantage over uh, Server 2012 from a Link perspective. I think the uh, the installation and configuration process is all the same. I know my set CS2013 feature script seems to work fine deploying out. I was going to ask, is your script for did you update? Because otherwise it's irrelevant. Yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> that is yeah, how it works, definitely. I, until your script's ready for 2012. Yeah, sorry, we can't roll out past the update. That's your script. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, um, actually, somebody somebody posted a comment uh, about it, saying, you know, hey, when are you going to support R two? And I said, well, there's, you know, I've been begging for that for a while. Oh, I've been for 2008 yeah, R two. I've been begging you. <laughs> yeah, and the in the uh, you know the product group had not come out with an official uh, support statement on it, so I was reluctant to release a version of the script that would allow you to install it if it wasn't going to be supported. Um, and uh, it, but then we heard, you know. A timeline recently and so I, I started playing around with it and I, I do have one reader who has been uh, playing with kind of the, the beta version of it and, it and it seems to work well in my lab it, it all installs fine I don't have a, a production environment to test it in yet to uh, you know to see if you know any end users report any issues but it, it seems to work fine I didn't have to make any changes other than allowing the script to run on R2 so um, I know I tweeted that I was going to get it out yesterday, but uh, it'll probably be out today or tomorrow. So I'm really impressed with how fast the, the product team and support guys have moved to say that that's supported as well. Um, you know, obviously, 2012 R2 is very similar to 2012, so mm -hmm. we would probably all have an inkling that it's going to work, but it still has to be tested to be supported. So it's, it's nice to see that moving so quickly. Um, I, I guess the, the interesting question that provokes is, is obviously 2012 R2 is, is ships with PowerShell 4 and the PowerShell 3 down level patch just been released. So is PowerShell 4 safe to put on your 2012 servers and, and uh, 08 R2 servers? I don't know what the answer to that is yet. Well, from from what I've uh, been following in the, uh, the PowerShell 3 versus 4 uh, debate, uh, it should be fine. Um, I'm not aware that there's any commandlets that change where, you know, syntax changes or anything like that. Uh, operationally, 
uh, running you know 3.0 commands should be fine. And, and, and actually, m- most of the commands are are PowerShell 2.0 commandlets, anyways. So um, I, I I think we're going to be fine. That 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 is something that we need to test out some more. I've not heard of any issues where that breaks. So we you know hopefully we'll be okay. Yeah, so I think the I agree with you. Logically, it should work fine, particularly because Link's supported on on R two. Um, but I think the management framework for uh, RTM down level stuff already says don't install it for SCOM and Exchange because I know they're more sensitive to uh, PowerShell version changes. Right. Um, I have not looked at uh, a 2012 R2 server yet, but um, I've always kind of wanted uh, the .NET 3.5 files to get installed with the OS so that when you're uh, installing the Windows features, uh, before doing, you know, for your prereqs, that you don't have to look at the Windows source files. But uh, uh, from what I see, that's not been resolved, unfortunately. So, um, and another thing that it, it actually, uh, the commuter, uh, cumulative update breaks or changes, I should say, is it changes the font in the control panel and sets you back to like a um, courier new type font or Times New Roman font. I don't know. That just drives me nuts. It doesn't look as clean as as it used to. Does anybody else notice that? Yeah, I've seen a few tweets about it, and I've, I've patched my lab, and I've seen it in my lab as well. I'm, I'm guessing that's not intentional and probably will go back in the next year, but it's just a guess. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Yep. Yep. Hopefully. Um, and along with um, that update, there was a cumulative update for Link Phone Edition devices, in fact, it was uh, it was rolled out twice. So if you have Link Phone Edition devices, LPE devices in your environment, there are new firmware out for uh, the HP, the Astra, and the uh, Polycom devices. Um, and we'll have a link to those firmware editions uh, uh, online. One of the things that um, that did get added now is you can now transfer directly to voicemail when you do a, a call transfer. And that's always been a uh, hotly uh, requested feature. In fact, um, there is a community-led effort uh, on ideascale.com where you can uh, submit your ideas or requests or, you know, bitches, I guess, for lack of a better term, about Link 2013. And people can vote on it and uh, and add their comments and stuff. And, and Transfer to Voicemail was always one that, that got a lot, of com- uh, a lot of votes and a lot of comments on it. So uh, glad to see that it, it finally gets added. Next up, um, for those of you that like to wallpaper your offices with all the different uh, 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 big printouts of uh, workload posters and, and things like that, the uh, Link 2013 Protocol Workloads poster is now available. And Ian, uh, have you taken a look at that? Yes, I have actually, yeah. Um, it, it came out um, mid-September um, in terms of a, a, a revision, I believe. I, I, got, I had a copy of it in, in July. And on close look, to be honest with you, I, I can't see much of a difference between what was uh, previously um, released as, a, as opposed to the, the se- September release. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has uh, had a chance to have a look at it yet. Yeah, no, I, I can't notice anything different either, but again, it could be something really minor. If you, they, they, they used to publish the change change log, too. I don't remember if they do that anymore. Yeah, no, there's nothing in the change log about uh, what, what's been what in the Yeah. Uh, 
Right, so uh, point, points to listeners, the first person to work out what the uh, what the change is on that face there. <laughs> yeah, my my mission's just to find a printer big enough to print one out. <laughs> you got to find a, a graphic design customer. Yeah, go down to the big Kinkos where they have a plotter. But, uh, okay, well, thanks, Ian. Uh, um, and, and while we've got you, Ian, you wanted to talk about some headsets that you've been playing around with. Yes, I have, yeah, so... Um, as part of my uh, my personal blogging uh, on my blog site, I've been doing a quite a bit of a, a review around uh, headsets of all different uh, manners, so uh, low, medium, and high uh, preference and uh, price points, I guess, uh, as well as uh, Bluetooth and decked capability headsets as well. So, um, spent a, a fair bit of time uh, with different headsets on my head. Um, basing them on different criterias and uh, giving them marks out of uh, all different scenarios. And, uh, yeah, I've got uh, uh, quite a good understanding now of the marketplace on uh, headsets. And, um, yeah, I'd like to discuss that a little bit further with you. So uh, we'll start off with the the low range. Um, So uh, just to to make you aware, I guess, I've been... um, um, matching up the the Jabra, the Plantronics, the Sennheiser, and um, in some cases Logitech headsets against each other, and uh, and really reviewing them. So for for the low range uh, or the, the the budget range headsets, I should say, um, the Jabra Voice um, 200 series, the, the Plantronics Blackwire 300 series, and the the Sennheiser SC30 series have been. Um, Put against each other, and and to be honest with you, you know they're all um, sub thirty pounds in the UK to, to purchase these, and they all do exactly the same. They, they are budget, they are more or less made of plastic throughout, um, and there's nothing really you can call against each of them. Uh, if I was totally honest, the the only thing I would say is um, the the Sennheiser, the a particular Sennheiser, the SC30 headset, which I uh, reviewed. Uh, the the wire was two meters long, so that that seemed to favour um, your customers who might have the, uh, a base unit under the desk, so they've got an extra long uh, USB cable to, to to still use the headset. So uh, so that really you know the the low end, uh, nothing really more to to report on that really. The the mid range, the the Jabra Voice uh, 500 series, the again the Black Wire Plantronics um, 500 and the Sennheiser. SC230, but equally uh, in this review, I, I particularly did the the Logitech um, 650E headset as well, the the first UC headset out from Logitech. Um, I, I originally saw that back in um, March at the uh, the UC Expo uh, down in London, actually, and I was really excited to see it. Cause, uh, if, if for the people who don't know that headset, it has a a different coloured um, LED uh, on the back of the boom arm, and I for the for the customers who are um, used to contact center environments, I thought this would be particularly useful for knowing when people are on the phone or off the phone. Um, sadly, um, that that headset for me personally in, in my review never lived up to the expectations uh, I wanted it to. I, I found that the the audio was 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 quite sensitive, and and uh, uh, and, and in some cases I had to literally move the boom arm to a right angle so I didn't get distortion on on talking so uh, I'm quite quite saddened over that really um, and I am in discussions as we speak with Logitech about 
the reasonings for that. Um, again, that that particular um, review, um, I I like the. Uh, the Jabra voice, that, that seems to have the clearest audio and uh, capabilities uh, in that one. The high-end um, headset review, I, um, I'm, I'm currently using that as we speak at the moment, a Sennheiser SC600 series headset. It's their flagship one. Um, it's only been out um, uh, very recently, I think about a month it's been out. Um, and the price point for the high-end, uh, you're talking £100 plus. Um, in, in some cases, again, I uh, put this up against the the Jabra Biz 2400 and the uh, Plantronics Blackwire 720. Uh, I'm still in review. Um, I'm in review of this the Sennheiser until Wednesday of next week. But at this very moment, um, I am putting the 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 Blackwire 720 against the Sennheiser as as the um, the two primary. Um, headsets, wide headsets of choice there. In terms of Bluetooth, um, done, a, done a fair bit around Bluetooth, so this is the, the, the Legend, the Pantronix Legend, the Jabra Motion and Sennheiser's UC Presence, um, and love the Legend, I think it's a great headset, I don't know if anybody is using it at, uh, at present or, or not, but uh, yeah, really nice headset, don't particularly like how big it feels on your ear, you know, quite a, quite a uh, kit sat, sat on top of your ear lobe. Um, the the Jabra Motion itself, yeah, really nice as well. Um, disappointed in uh, the range. The 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 Jabra guys made a, a big um, statement saying, you know, the the um, the headset can go 100 meters away from the actual uh, the the base station, the units, and the 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 dongle we plug into your your computer, which isn't the case. I've, I've done many tests yeah. on this. I don't know if anybody else has seen it, but the maximum I could get away from uh, in a literal line of sight on that headset was 32 meters. Uh, and um, Jabra State in their documentation and even their sales guy tell me it should be able to go 100 meters. I, I've tried two of them and I can't go over 32 on both. I, yeah, I mean, I, I had the same. I, I was using a, the Legend up until last week when I got a um, um, a, a, a Logitech A20 um, deck headset, and you know the a well, one I, you know the, the Bluetooth dongle is fine, but the problem I have is that it you know I find that it fights the internal Bluetooth for some stuff sometimes. Um, and it's been kind of wonky, you know. So I get that you know you can use it with any other any Bluetooth mm. chipset, but you know you're not going to get wideband, right? That's um, right. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, the range was not bad, but just you know, it was certainly no. I, I hadn't. This thing, I was still saying to you guys earlier before we started. I, I first time I've ever used a deck headset, and the the the, the range is insane compared to Bluetooth. I, I was just shocked how much farther it goes. Yeah, um, and, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, my office was in the basement, and I, you know, I if I went upstairs, and as long as I was like you know line of the floor to the dongle, uh, it was fine. But if I went you know ten feet. You know, at an angle from the basement, it was, it was you know start breaking up and eventually just drop. I mean, at least it wouldn't drop the call, which is quite a cool, kind of cool. And I and I, I kind of like um, uh, uh, Plantronics, you know, and you know internal audio voice like battery level. It tells you which to unmute the um, the um, the sensor, you know, that uh, uh, it'll uh, sense when if you know if you're hanging, if you pick it up or move it down, it'll answer or drop the call accordingly. It's, Absolutely, not, it's not always perfect, but it's it's pretty good. Um, I liked it a lot, but just the range on the deck just like totally sold me. And uh, I mean, I'll take it traveling. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to bring this big, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> you know device on me, you know, uh, when I'm when I'm moving around. But 
uh, and the Voyager um, is awesome with their little, you know, the, the chargey case. I think I think that's kind of a brilliant design piece right there. But uh, so I think you know, for me, it's, it's the combo. You know, I, I like the deck headset when I'm home, and I'm going to take the, the 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 Voyager when I'm on the road. Mm. Yeah, and agree, I, I totally agree with you as well there, John. So, so in terms of the deck headsets, um, again, Logitech have brought out the like, it's like you're using as as we speak. I think the 820e, um, yeah. a, a, a nice headset, um, and uh, certainly in the UK, um, the price point on one of them is is literally um, half the price of what another competitor's deck headset is. You know, in the UK, I, I can pick one of them one of them up for about 130, 140 pounds now. You know, and compared to the likes of Jabra Sennheiser, you're talking 270. Yeah, pounds. I saw the the Sennheiser. Um, yeah, and I read your review. Your review was was great because I was looking at getting this headset, and uh, I use your review as kind of a guideline because uh, yeah, the Sennheiser uh, Link Conference, and it's gorgeous. I mean, you know that 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 base cube. You know, I mean, it looks yeah. like something like Apple would mean. I mean, it's just really really gorgeous piece of hardware. But when they tell me how much it was, I'm like, yeah, of course it's gorgeous. It's you know, it's as much as the last. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it is. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but you get what you pay for. I mean, it's a really nice, you know, statement piece. And obviously, like I said, the range is nuts. So um, um, I can certainly see justifying the cost for some people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, like I say, I, I I have on my desk the 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 Sennheiser DW Office is the um, device. But um, yeah, it's really nice. Um, but when you when you Paying three hundred pounds plus for one year, you right. expect it to be nice. Right. Well. I was kind of hoping Sennheiser would kick me one, but no, <laughs> no, no such. All right. No if you ever come dice. to the, if you ever come to the UK, John, you can have you can take mine off my desk. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate. Um, yeah, uh, I also did a, a, a bit around the mini conference device as well. So the 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 little uh, speakers, what you can get. So the the Jabra Speak Five Ten, the the Bluetooth one, the Callisto Plantronics, and the new Logitech P Seven Ten E, which is um, absolutely new out. Um, I'm unfortunate. To, uh, I missed my postman on Friday to collect a couple of them from uh, from them. So I'm collecting them on uh, Monday. Some some nice new features in it, so you can now dock um, your um, smartphone into it, um, and it's got uh, near frequency uh, radios on it, so you can uh, pair straight away with it with a a smart device. Uh, at this moment, I don't know how the quality is going to be on one of them. Um, haven't. Um, had a go uh, play with one yet. Uh, all I know is the, in terms of price point, they, they seem to be in the UK about fifty pounds more uh, uh, expensive than the the Jabra and the Plantronics equivalents. Uh, so hopefully you, you get. Yeah, I think the website it was like one hundred and seventy nine US, and but now if you hit the, in the US you just get like a, you know, please put your form and in, info, you know, information forms, so we'll, we'll contact you. There's no way to buy it that I see yet. So no. Um, it, uh, we can buy it, or certainly, I think it's out at the end of, um, uh, middle or end of next month, actually, in the UK. And, uh, yeah, it's it's already on uh, some websites in the UK now for £139 uh, to, yeah, to buy. Yeah, right. so, Yeah, and, and the, the Jabra Speak 510 is now £90, so there's a little bit of a difference. Um, I, I can tell you that, you know, looking or having used a, uh, a Speak 410 now since um, pretty much the day it came out, that is a phenomenal device, and yeah. um, I know that uh, I got a, a 510 for my uh, manager, and he really likes it too. And, and as, as I've said before, if uh, if you ever want to sit in a conference or a classroom and take notes, it makes a perfect microphone going into OneNote. 
So you know, it, it absolutely does. You're right, Pat. I've, I've done that many times, and it's absolutely crystal clear. See, for me, it wouldn't, I couldn't get it to work with one second. It might be a surface thing because it, it totally – I brought it to Master to do just that, and uh, it wasn't reliable, and I, I basically gave up. <laughs> Ironically, though, the, 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 the services mics actually did a really good job of recording this. I was able to get really good uh, audible stuff and good fidelity with just the – built-in mic array, so I was shocked. But yeah, day one, I'm trying to fumble with that thing, and it's going, and Boris looking at me like, are you going to shut that thing up or what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the only downside to the, the Jabra Speak 510 is you don't get the little um, Jabra Bluetooth dongle with it. You know, the, that that's, you've got to pair with your native Bluetooth on your machine. Uh, yeah, but I think on the Jabras, you can use the same dongle for multiple devices, whereas on the Pantronics, yeah, so. they're one-to-one. Yeah, that, that's exactly true, Tom, but it means you've got to carry another Jabra device with you, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, but it, it, uh, on the flip side, you don't know. I hate that with the Plantronics, you have to remember which dongle's which. Uh, yeah, good point, actually, yeah. So which uh, which Callisto did you... Uh... The the 620 uh, okay. Callisto. So um, kind of a yeah. competitor to the, the Speak 510. Yeah, I, f- I found it quite, um, quite tinny, though, in terms of voice. So, you know, it, it sounded... Um, not not clear and and true. It, it was you know um, something not right with it. I didn't think. Uh, and and also I I got reports from the other uh, people who I was talking to as well that they thought it sounded tinny and a bit echoey. So. I bought I bought a BCC 950 uh, about a couple months ago just to have and for you know test and use. Um, well, actually I bought, I bought it because the way you can pan and zoom the the lens um, to avoid uh, showing. Highly shady looking conduit in uh, in my basement, my formerly my former off- basement office. I figured if I got the I got this camera, I got, at least I could like you know zoom it right to me and you have to see all this this stuff. But uh, I love that thing for the money. It's a pretty good um, little portable. And you know the way you, you can you can if you know if you ever play with them, but you can take a you know it's got the 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 cameras on a stock, but the stock is just like kind of a plastic uh, micro USB stick, and you can take it. Uh, and kind of dock the, the lens back into the base, just throw the the little stock on you know on your bag. So you can kind of actually it's actually kind of portable. So you could actually bring it with you if you wanted to. Absolutely, it's a great device. And, and how cheap are one of them? They're they're really. Um... Yeah, I think I paid like on e- I bought it off someone on eBay for like two hundred ten bucks. Uh, yeah, you know it's not bad. Oh, buy.com I bought it from. Yeah, they are. They're in, in the UK, the hundred ninety nine pounds for one of them, and you know put that against you know I know it doesn't do the. The, the the round table capability, but you know, for two hundred pounds, it's really cheap. A good good device to have. And interestingly, just uh, onto the next point, actually, uh, Logitech are uh, bringing out a new um, video conference device called a, um, a CC thirty three hundred um, is is on its way out, and I'm going to see that on the eighth of November. So this apparently is a video conferencing device which isn't a competitor to your, to your CX5500 or your uh, CX5000. It's one which is made for a uh, an 8 to 10 seat video conference um, and I'm told that the it's a, a single camera uh, on the top and um, it, it's listening for active speakers and apparently the camera spins to the active oh, that- Cool. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> it's NASA's head at you. Hey, wait, easy, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, 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 yeah. So, apparently, that's out at the end of uh, November as well. And um, I, th- I'm, I, I hear that it's about twelve hundred pounds. So, well, if you're a nerd, those of you still awake. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
so so yeah, so point hardware, you're good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've I've done uh, like say a, a bit of a review on the the headset. So I'm I'm quite happy to if anybody uh, uh, who's listening jump onto my uh, blog site. Uh, all the reviews are on there, and I'm quite happy to take any questions off the blog site to to try and help anybody who's maybe uh, stuck on what what to buy. So you had you had mentioned the the 650e headset. With mm. the uh, with the little presence indicator on the back of the boom, which I thought was kind of a nice touch if you're in a a call center. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that that's kind of my go-to wired headset right now. Um, a couple things that I I really like it. I I thought it sounds good to me. So you know what I hear in my ears, it's a stereo headset. Um, yeah. Was was a pretty good representation. Um, I've not heard any people complain about you know what they hear from me. Um, but one thing I really liked, which is somewhat trivial, is the cable is flat. And being a flat, you know, kind of a wide, flat cable, it's almost yeah. impossible to tangle that cable up. And it so, is. you know, like like I'm sure a, a, a couple of you guys, I have a ton of headsets on my on my desk. In fact, I'm looking right now, I have four wired headsets plugged into my computer. And, you know, the nice thing about the 650 is even though they're all plugged in together in the same spot and they're all kind of hanging on the same little knob on the drawer, um, I can grab that 650 and not worry about the, the cable getting all tangled up. Um, it does. It is link uh, optimized so that the um, the little control in the middle of the cable there does mute the link client as well and not just, you know, the headset, which is sometimes kind of a pain in the butt. But um, but but I, I do like that. And then um, from speakerphones, you, you mentioned the the Callisto 620. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually got the Callisto 800 series now, and I'm wondering if you had taken a look at that. No, I haven't actually. No, it was it was one which um, uh, I got sent by Plantronics uh, as as the competitor to the 510 actually. So uh, when I reached out to the, the vendor, I was telling them I'm doing the review, and that's that's what they sent me. So I'll I'll um, I'll be interested to know how. I'll, how that compares to the 620, actually, particularly, and uh, well, it's, if I get the same. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's completely different. So, you know, the 620 is basically, you know, a speaker with a, uh, a couple of buttons on it for, you know, hook and things like that. Um, the 800 series has a digital display and a full keypad. And, um, you know, it's it's a little bit heavier base. It, I, don't, I don't really think of it as more of a, a portable um, speakerphone that you can throw in your bag like the 620 or the the 510, um, but but kind of a nice touch with the 800 series is there's actually a Bluetooth microphone that you can uh, pop off of it that that charges while it's on the base, and it's got a little clip. So you take the little microphone, you clip it on your shirt collar or whatever, and you can walk around the room um, with and still have a local microphone, but the speakerphone functionality. Which is kind yeah, of sounds good. Yeah, which is kind of an interesting touch when you think about it. One of our customers has got one of those in uh, kind of a, a one of the corner office room guys, and he uh, struts around on his on his link call with his speakerphone and his his lapel mic. It's quite cool, actually. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you think of it as essentially an LPE device without a handset. I mean, you know, you've got the full digital display, um, you know, it's got the time on it, it's got, you know, a full keyboard, great big mute and hook buttons and volume up and down and things like that. Um, so it's really neat. And it works great for me. Um, people that I've talked to across on it have said they can tell that it is 
a speakerphone, that I'm talking on a speakerphone, but the, the audio was very clear and, you know, there were no issues. So um, it, it's a great little device. It's the, um, the Plantronics Callisto 800. So mm, I'll be sure to speak to our uh, Plantronics about that and uh, see if they'll, they'll send me one out. Yeah. Sounds, yeah, sounds interesting. Yeah, very cool. Excellent. So, all right. Well, great. Thanks for the, thanks for the info there. No problem. Um, one other thing I, I did want to bring up uh, before we switch to the exchange stuff is um, the release of the Link Server Network Guide V2. So there's a, a new guide out. Uh, everything you need to know about uh, networking, um, uh, a QoE, things like that. With, uh, with it's quite it's quite large. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all, well over 100 pages, so it's it's good time uh, pillow reading material. It's around um, 150. Yeah. So definitely uh, uh, take a look. Uh, that it's uh, if, if you're doing a, a deployment it's it's got all kinds of information that you should uh, uh, take into consideration so all right and switching to a much smaller list of things for uh, exchange uh, the office 365 mail flow troubleshooter uh, Sirkan, what do you know about that oh yeah it's again a website it's a tool <laughs> there's not much to say about it oh it's a Nice guided walkthrough for troubleshooting, uh, sending, receiving mail or delayed messages on Office 365 or on-premises. Actually, it's just for Office 365, uh, but they have five different scenarios depending on where the user mailbox is. So it might be a hybrid uh, exchange infrastructure. You might be using Office 365 and the mailbox might be on Office 365 or it can be on-prem. And if you are having difficulties on sending and receiving email, uh, you can use this nice website to walk through the steps that might help you to troubleshoot what's going on. Uh, but what I can say is, as a basic thing, before starting any troubleshooting on Office 365, uh, make sure that the service health is okay. So if you go to like Office Center and take a look at the service health to see if there is an ongoing maintenance or anything on your infrastructure before doing any troubleshooting, that can save you a lot of time. And then you can use this tool to walk through and give it to give it the reason uh, why it, it might give you the reason why it's not working for you to send or receive any messages uh, it's a pretty nice website and thank god it's not on Silverlight so that's all I can say <laughs> well uh, I, I, I've, I've just looked at it and, and it's just a basic just a basic steps you can take to uh, troubleshoot uh, yeah, it's uh, not giving a lot of details but it's no, and, just and, and, a very it, general walkthrough to help yeah. an admin to realize that where the problem is well and, and I've got a lot of customers that aren't familiar with the uh, office 365 portal page and this this troubleshooter helps them with screenshots where to look um, and and where to f find uh, more information on whether on which side the problem is and stuff like that. So, uh, especially for for new um, um, admins in Office 365, this can be very uh, very helpful. Exactly, I agree. It's not a very huge tool or anything. It's not going to give you very in-depth solutions, but it's going to probably help you to point out generally where the problem might be. 
So. I, th- I think it's also a bit of uh, supporting for for the um, Office 365 support calls, so they they can first point you to this troubleshooter, and then um, if if you still have an issue or still figure out figure out whether it's an issue uh, on which side, then you can provide the information to the the, the support call. So. Yeah, and it can get annoying for the admins because this is a website and users can use it as well. So they can come in here and click just next and, yeah, that's my problem and send an email to the admin saying change this (laughs) (laughs) without knowing that might be the problem or not. Uh, well, one, th- one thing for, for um, I, I, I hoped to see in is uh, in, in, in a, perhaps a, a future version is a direct link to the um, Office uh, 365 panel, but uh, well, that, that, that's just my take on it. That, uh, yeah. the, the screen should work as well. Interesting. Well, another you know, obviously just another tool to use for uh, for tracking down potential issues. So thanks, Sirkin. So uh, next up. Um, how to block OWA for external users. So in case you're in an organization where you want to uh, uh, allow it for internal but not external users, there's um, a post out now by Jeff Guillet, one of the Exchange MCMs. Uh, but uh, Dave, uh, you've looked into that, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and this is actually a, a question that, that comes by um, every once in a while that, that uh, organizations wish to do block uh, OWA. And um, a lot of times they just do it via TMG or, or other solutions. But this solution uh, describes very clearly um, with uh, additional virtual directories and uh, shows a way how to uh, provide a, a, a clear um, um, error message for the external user um, to you know in order to, to know what what is going on. And um, uh, EWS and uh, Exchange ActiveSync aren't uh, impacted. Um, uh, also, Outlook Anywhere sh- shouldn't be impacted uh, by uh, by a solution. So that that's uh, a good win. Um, and um, well, one one thing is that, um, uh, for instance, well, because the OWA and uh, the ECP, the Exchange Control Panel Virtual Directory, are are, uh, are blocked, as it were, for external users. External uh, Outlook Anywhere users with Outlook can't use certain options because they use the Exchange Control Panel, the option uh, screen. Uh, but other than that, it, that's uh, well, I don't know a lot of companies who um, really have that rigid uh, requirements for blocking OWA. Um, but uh, this this strategy uh, is, is something that uh, could uh, sincerely uh, work. Uh, if that's the case, because uh, the um, OWA protocol uh, blocking option in Exchange, you can uh, block uh, certain protocols per, per mailbox, per user, or even per, per uh, virtual directory. But that um, is, uh, in this case, uh, works internally and externally, so that uh, would be too too much uh, uh, for the scenario. Um, so and uh, well, it's it's a very clear description uh, on uh, how to do it. So um, if you have that uh, specific requirement, uh, certainly take a take a look. Uh, it's very easily explained, and uh, will probably help you a lot. I would like to add something to that. Then to everyone listening to this, <laughs> this is not 
to block every communication external. This is just for OWA and ECP. Uh, so the scenario is actually, I think, you still need, act if this is a scenario where you have active sync access, you want to keep that and you don't want OWA, right, Dave? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So ActiveSync and uh, EWS clients like uh, Mac clients or um, 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 some other clients uh, uh, would still work with this solution. It's just the OWA. Um, so, so this is uh, just a single scenario where you just don't want OWA, but you want ActiveSync or EWS to keep working. Um, yeah, external for external users. Yeah. So you uh, internal users have to have uh, OWA. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but but it, it's um, well, it depends on your uh, company policy whether this is uh, something you require. Um, if it's uh, if you want to limit some stuff from um, OWA, you can also look into. Uh, OWA uh, policies or something like that, but also those are um, um, internal and external. So uh, the, the the well, it um, in, in within Exchange you have a, a well, not a real. You are external, you are internal, um, and this blog post well, for, at least for external uh, OWA users uh, can can be a, a solution to block them if you require so. Cool. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Cool. And uh, and Sirkan, um, the Exchange Server Deployment Assistant uh, is out now. So uh, what's up with that? Oh, yeah, it's been updated. So what happened is now we have all the scenarios in there, on-premises, hybrid, cloud-only uh, deployments. So you can have a nice guide in there, and it's just not for 2013, it's for 2010 and 2013 at the same time. So it's a unified deployment assistant tool now, and all links and everything is working, so you can directly access it if you have it on your bookmarks on your browser, which is nice. Uh, <laughs> the other thing is, again, it's not Silverlight. <laughs> which is great. Uh, it used to be Silverlight. If you remember the old versions, yeah. uh, it yeah. was running Silverlight, and it was uh, you can't access it through every device and stuff, so it's not uh, Silverlight anymore. And they did add all the scenarios in there now. Uh, so if you have any projects or if you are planning to upgrade your infrastructure to 2010 or 2013 for Exchange, you can use this nice guide and walk through the options. You can always, in one point, stop and continue later on. It keeps the information so you can go back. Uh, in the beginning, it will ask you some questions depending on your deployment. And depending on your answers, it will give you the walkthrough for the steps to deploy a healthy exchange environment. So again, it's a very nice, good tool that is useful for any exchange admin or consultant out there. Yeah, I, I mean, even I you know, use some time, time to see if I can do C5 stuff, stuff that I might have missed, stuff, you know, well, I forgot that step, whatever. Yeah, there, I think it's just, as we all know, like, while doing an exchange project, there's always some missing things in that deployment assistant as well. And also sometimes we forget to add our steps. So we go back and take a look at the deployment assistant if we missed any steps uh, in general. Uh, again, it, it's not a planning tool, by the way. You have to have, you have to make your own plan. 
properly. It is just to help you with the deployment uh, actions that you will take. Oh, and and it's 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 a really uh, basic explanation of of the most um, um, most exchange deployments. Um, it's mostly and, default settings in there. Yeah. The deployment but it, it can uh, really help if you uh, because within my company we work with uh, senior and junior uh, technicians. So um, this is a, this is the deployment assistant. Uh, this is a tool that I point to uh, my junior t technician. So well, if if you haven't ever uh, or, or it's, it's perhaps years ago that you deployed Exchange, well look at this. These are these are the the, the f uh, most important steps. Just before you begin. Uh, just look into this, um, but I, I do have to say that uh, uh, we um, and I missed that. I think I missed that in previous versions. Um, that in this new version they uh, have uh, um, uh, well the um, after deployment uh, uh, phase uh, a lot of uh, uh, points yeah, post configuration uh, tasks. Yeah, exactly, and uh, and those point to the TechNet uh, articles. Uh, which uh, are leading in in uh, the, these kinds of deployments, uh, obviously. So, um, um, and and those fill in automatically the, the details. Uh, but for for very complex uh, deployments, you still probably have to do your own thinking. Uh, but it is it, it's uh, always a helpful tool. What I recommend is get the list from the deployment assistant. Take a look at that list. Get the. Uh, steps that you need to take action for and adapt them to your migration and use your own settings and requirements and then continue with the installation so it's always important to know the requirements on your infrastructure before taking any action even though this is a nice cute uh, assistant that you can run and follow the steps Always keep in mind that there might be some steps that doesn't match your organization. Excellent. Well, thanks for that information. That uh, certainly helps. And that does it for this particular episode of the UC Architects. This week, I want to thank our co-hosts, John Cook, Sir Ken Veraglou, Tom Arbuthnot, and Dave Stork. I want to uh, thank our special guest, Ian Smith. Hopefully, uh, it was a pleasant experience, Ian. And uh, I want to thank our show's editor, Andrew Price, for having to go through and make us actually sound smart. So, thanks, Andrew. <laughs> uh, we want to remind you that the UC Architects are online. Visit our website at www.theucarchitects.com. On Twitter, follow us at The UC Architects. Uh, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash theucarchitects. And we have a group on LinkedIn. Podcast episodes are available on our Windows Phone app, soon our iOS app, the iTunes Store, the Zoom Marketplace, and in your favorite RSS podcast client. See our website for links to everything. We'll see you back for the next episode with Steve Hosting. Yeah.